when I was a fresh graduate day one at Goldman Sachs, I didn't start working. I went into a very thoughtful, rigorous, extensive training program um, that, that went on for weeks before I was job ready. And I think that's the way to do it. That's the way it should be done. Welcome to the Balancing Act Podcast. I'm Andy Tempty, and today we've got Kate Eberly-Walker, the CEO of Presence Learning, joining us. Uh, Kate is also a former colleague of mine uh, from the days at Kaplan, so welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you, Andy. It's great to see you and great to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, uh, uh, Kate and I worked on a number of uh, acquisition deals uh, while at, while at Kaplan, so we we, uh, we we built financial models and we made cases for for businesses, and um, I just uh, I can't say enough. Uh, I don't want this to turn into a love fest, but I just can't <laughs> say enough about how fondly I remember our time together. Okay. We, we traveled, we negotiated, we made a few slides, right? Yeah. <laughs> all, the, all the good memories. Yeah, you got to have a shiny deck uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to make the case. That's yep, for sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, today we're going to continue our series on the reskilling revolution and explore the topic uh, through the lens of individuals with uh, physical and mental challenges. Uh, you know, Kate, you you run this business, Presence Learning, so I'm really eager to uh, learn more about the work you do there. Uh, but before we get started, uh, let's just start with your story uh, and uh, how you got to where you are. Sure. So I, I'm a finance person at heart, I think. I think still. I, I started out, you know, I always loved math, loved working with numbers. I used to follow my, my dad worked in a bank and I used to get to go with him to work sometimes. And he'd, he'd give me, you know, things to add up on his calculator and print out. And I just, you know, I always thought that I would go to work in finance. And so I studied accounting and finance in my undergrad and I went to work in investment banking. My first job out of college was a Goldman Sachs. Um, And somehow in those years there, I found my way into first the publishing industry and then ultimately the education industry. So I spent five years in banking, got to advise a lot of great clients, one one of my favorites of which was the Washington Post Company, um, and which of course owns Kaplan, which is, as you say, where we met and worked together. And I ended up working at Kaplan for almost a decade. So it was really a you know, very formative part of my career. I, I talk about it as it's, it's where I grew up as a professional. Uh, I, I worked on M&A acquisitions, I worked on investing, other corporate projects, and I just really got to study the education industry uh, from all angles. I, I worked on almost 80 acquisitions, so I got to you know, study all these different companies, get to know all these management teams. Um, and business models. And, uh, you know, it turned out over the course of those years, I was forming stronger and stronger opinions of my own about what what made for a good business, what was the right way to run a business. And, um, you know, honestly, it must happen without me realizing it. After years of 
uh, you know, refusing to be interested in opportunities to to move to the operating side, I suddenly found it was it was really what I wanted to do. So uh, I left Kaplan after all those years and went to join IAC Interactive Corp. They had just bought their first education company, Tutor.com. They were looking for someone like me with with industry knowledge and and opinions and perspective to help them think about how to grow a bigger uh, online consumer education-focused business. So I, I went over there. We, among other things, acquired the Princeton Review, merged it in with Tutor.com, and in shortcutting a story to not make it too long, I, uh, I moved from the deal side to the operating side then. I uh, became the CFO and then ultimately the CEO of that business. And, um, you know, I always say I wasn't a person who went through my career saying, I'm going to be a CEO one day. It really uh, evolved. But once I was, I knew I had found the right job um, and, and, you know, had found what I, what I love to do. And, you know, I, I hope I'm good at, which is running companies, leading teams, leading people. And um, after running Princeton Review for a few years, when that business was sold, I found my way to Presence Learning, my current company. So I've been running Presence Learning for a little over three years now. And uh, as you say, we, we provide online therapy for children in special education programs, mostly in public schools. I love it. We, I could talk only about that for the rest of our time together. But uh, that, that, in a nutshell, is my, my career story and, and my evolution that got me here. And you're sticking to it. So mm-hmm. the, the big question, though, we're two, we're two finance people, um, and this is going to say a lot about you as a person, are you Texas Instruments or are you Hewlett Packard? HP. Oh, what does that man. say? Uh oh. <laughs> it just means that everything is backwards, or at one time everything was backwards in your life. <laughs> it's just how I. It's how I learned it. But but the truth is, I am really. I, I'm an Excel person at heart. I've, I've never moved over to using using a MacBook. I've got to have my Excel. I know all the keystrokes, ah. and and you know even when I'm working out a seemingly non-numerical problem, you know, doing some business thinking, problem solving. I I think in Excel, I just kind of open a blank sheet and noodle around and move things around. And it, it's, it helps me figure things out. It's, so I, I would say I'm an Excel person at heart. Were, when you were a kid working w- with your dad at the bank, were you able to become a blistering 10-key gal? What is that? I don't know what that is. Well, t- ten key. That's the uh, uh, that's that cal- that's that calculator that's got the uh, the paper, you know. And oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. It's it's a special set of hand uh, hand oh, eye yeah. coordination. Oh, I was really good at that. Yeah, oh, I just didn't I, yeah, have I, a name for it. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I were. loved it. I loved it. And you know, I didn't realize until I was fully grown that that wasn't real work I was doing. Like I actually, my dad would, you know, prepare these, these folders, these manila folders with, you know, sheets of paper with different numbers. And it would be very important that I add them all up and print out the results and keep them in the folders. Um, and, and I thought for years that that was serious, important work that I was doing for him. 
<laughs> well, I'm, the, your experience with Ten Key is what then makes the HP more uh, accessible uh, to you. Mm-hmm. Just a mm-hmm. little, little fun fact. Uh, that is uh, a fun fact yeah, for, yeah. for me. I don't know if anyone in our audience is going to agree, but <laughs> well, yeah, we'll, we'll 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 see with the with the comments. But uh, let's. Uh, what is one key accelerant to your career that you can share with our listeners? Was there a spark? Was there, you know, like, like something that really put rocket boosters behind you? Well, it was, it was for me, it was a person who I went to work for. It was when I, when I left Kaplan and went to tutor.com, I went to work for a woman named Mandy Ginsburg. She was the CEO there at the time. She had been the CEO of Match.com. And, you know, she she recruited me personally, individually, because she, because I, you know, I had the knowledge, I had the, the perspective that she wanted, that she felt she needed for her business. And it was the first time that I was really treated that way. You know, when you're younger and you're, and you're moving up in your career, you're trying to convince people that, you know, to take a chance on you. Like, you know, she's, she's pretty smart. I, th- I think she can do the job. And this was, um, it, it, it was really, I, I was just treated so differently from the start as, you know, we want you to come because you've done this, because you know this. And, um, from the start, I worked differently. It was a real lesson in, you know, the value of perception, confidence, all, all of these things that, you know, circle around the substance of the work itself really do matter. And, and I think it ultimately made my work better because I, you know, I, I had this seat at the table. And from there, everything, I mean, it was two years after making that change that, that I first became a CEO and I never would have predicted that, uh, at the, at the point that I was starting out there. Yeah, that, that's cool. Um, so now we're going to get into the business that you lead. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but my, the rock band that I'm, that I'm in, our, our motto is rocking out and doing good. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we do, we give back to the community and it's, it's, it's all about having fun, but also giving back. And I'm really intrigued by the business, uh, that you run because you must have kind of the same, that built in purpose and, uh, and, uh, that, uh, that, that uh, that drives your time at Presence. Can can you let our listeners know more about uh, Presence Learning's purpose and what what makes you most excited about that business? Yeah, we 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 have really two uh, two amazing elements to our purpose. Uh, one is to ensure that every child in the public education system has access to the therapy and support services that they need to be successful. And that's, you know, the, coming to Presence Learning was, was very eye-opening for me at the time. I was new to this sector of education and I, I didn't have full awareness of how, you know, how difficult it can be to identify a disability, diagnose a disability. And even once all of that is done uh, and you know what the child needs for supports, finding the right professional with the right license in the right place is incredibly difficult. There aren't, this is hard work and there aren't enough people doing it. So we, so, so, you know, we started out, the company was founded in 2009, this belief that you could solve at least some of that 
by uh, by providing the service online. And a lot of the early school districts that Presence Learning worked with were in very remote rural areas where, you know, they'd say they, they couldn't find a single school psychologist, you know, within 200 miles of the district. So this was just really revolutionary for them. Um, you know, I think that the innovators in education are, are often those with the highest need, right? The ones who really need to figure figure something out, figure out a different way. And that was definitely true for presence learning in the early days for, for teletherapy. Um, what we realized, what I realized as I was coming in, that we had an equally important mission, which was to provide a different kind of career path for the therapists and the psychologists and the counselors who do this work. Um, this is very hard work, can be very draining, uh, and it is done primarily by women. So uh, greater than three quarters of the professionals in these sectors, uh, sometimes much more depending on the license, are women. And a lot of them uh, start out working in schools, um, you know, driving from location to location. But when they reach a point where, you know, maybe they have their own children or something else changes in their lives where they start to need a different balance or different flexibility, you know, they, they, were, they were sometimes really grappling with or making the tough decision to leave the school-based work and go work in private practice, maybe go work at a clinic, something that was a little more predictable, containable, manageable. And we wanted to find a way for them to keep doing this work with these kids. You know, they they study for this, they get advanced graduate degrees to to help these populations and, and they love it and they want to keep doing it. But you gotta, you know, as everywhere in work, you've got to figure out ways to allow for remote work, allow for schedule flexibility and control. And we we did that. We do that. And as a result, today, we give over 2,000 uh, working mom therapists work opportunities to, to keep doing this therapy with kids in schools. So to me, that's um, that's become, you know, as much of a driver and, and a purpose to what we do. Oh, that is that is just phenomenal. Um, you know, this series that we're, we're doing is all about uh, the, the reskilling revolution. Uh, for our listeners that are just coming into the series right now, uh, organizations like World Economic Forum estimate that up to a billion people will need to be reskilled uh, over the next decade. Uh, we tend not to talk about uh you know, po- populations that uh, that have challenges, and I'd I'd really like to uh, you know bring bring that into the conversation. Can can you talk to us about the, the uh, and I, I'll, I'm just take a step back here. My this is very personal to me because my little sister uh, was one of those individuals who had not one but two uh, children uh, with uh, with disabilities going through <laughs> the school system. I can attest directly from her experience how difficult it was to find uh, mm-hmm. to find the right people. Uh, and th- her children are now, uh, are now grown. They're they're of age, and they're active uh, participants uh, in 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 the workforce. And I think we we kind of uh, turn a blind eye uh, to that segment of the workforce. So let, let's dive in there, and you know, can you talk to us about the role that uh, K twelve special education professionals can play in preparing individuals uh, like my like my sister's uh, children uh, for the future world of work. 
Yeah, yeah. There's this is such a great question. So I think, you know, first, I think it's important to remember that, you know, the whole philosophy of special education in US public schools, which is which is not only to provide these children with supports and to provide them with therapy to address their disabilities, but to do so with an intention to as much as possible keep them integrated into the general education programs and the, you know, the mainstream, so to speak, school environment. I think that's really important and speaks to workforce readiness too. I mean, it's really, it's really saying, showing, telegraphing to these children that, you know, they don't, they, they can, they can be successful with everyone else. They don't need to be in separate classrooms. They, you know, they, they can have the same jobs that everyone else has ultimately, right? I, th- I think it's important um, that, that we start with that philosophy and that when we establish these programs, you know, we, we try to avoid creating separate special education classrooms entirely. We try to keep these kids together in the classroom as much as possible. Um, the other thing that that I think about a lot is, is is so communication is is key to well it's key to probably everything in life right it's key to key to relationships <laughs> key to your career um, but you know certainly I think it's critical to professional success whatever your job whatever your profession uh, to be a strong communicator and to be able to clearly convey your ideas be able to represent your ideas. Um, and you know the the by far the most common element of a special education service package for for you know many children across a number of disabilities is is speech therapy speech language pathology and you know as i've as i've watched the impact that that can have and and one of my daughters gets speech therapy i didn't even know until i started working at presence learning um, what, what it was that she needed, what she was struggling with. You know, I wasn't getting clear answers. And this happens to a lot of parents. Um, very fortunately, right. I end up in this place where I'm, I'm surrounded by experts in speech pathology and I was able to have her evaluated and, um, they were able to identify what the disability was and what the treatment was. And today, I mean, my daughter is, is completely different in the way she speaks and represents herself. And, and I've watched firsthand those therapy sessions where her therapist is walking her through her strategies for how to, how to read, how to speak, how to write. Uh, and, you know, I, I just think often to myself that th- those are the core skills that everyone needs, I think, uh, you know, across the workforce. And, um, you know, getting that targeted work is, is, you know, incredibly, can be incredibly valuable for, for these kids. And I think can really make a difference. Um, last thing I'll say, cause again, this is something I just go on about for a long time, <laughs> but, but I think, um, you know, it, on the mental health counseling side and the behavior counseling side, there's also just so much value in, you know, really paying attention for these children into, how they receive information and um, 
how they self-manage, you know, executive functioning, of course, is, it has become something more, you know, more broadly taken across general education. But, um, you know, this behavior modifications, behavior control, just being aware of, you know, how you interact. I, I think, again, these are things that are being done in a more targeted way for the special education population because they have a specific diagnosis or need. But these are things that everyone can benefit from in the workplace. Yeah, I've been very heartened over the last, you know, it's been eight, 10 years that this concept of social emotional learning has uh, really started to take hold in uh, in, in school systems and, uh, you know, the, the workforce, uh, folks our age and people that are in, in the workforce, we really got a lot of work to do in terms of uh, increasing the average emotional quotient or the EQ mm-hmm. uh, yep. of, of the average bear in the workforce. You know, you talked about communication as uh, one of the key skills. Uh, if you had to pick uh, a secondary uh, skill uh, other than communication that's kind of most important for uh, this segment of the workforce, wh- what would you recommend? I would say it, it's it's probably um, be- behavior. I don't want to call it behavior control because that's not quite right, but um, you know, behavior management. I think that's the word I was I was looking for, and and it's about you know being aware of your environment and and how you fit into that environment, which which can be very again something that can be very challenging for anybody, but you know particularly for some of these children, that's a really challenging thing for them to do to really think about the perspective of others. How how are they being viewed? Um, and you know how are others interacting with them? And so I think that 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 work and you know expanding that that understanding of yourself and and how you interact with the environment is a really big area. Yeah, yeah. So now let's let's uh, shift gears again and kind of uh, take it to the general population. Uh, Kate, you have deep, deep experience in the education space. You've looked at professional education businesses, higher education, uh, both for-profit, not-for-profit. You know, are higher education institutions ready for the kind of innovation and pace of change that's necessary uh, to keep up with the fact that we've got to reskill even if it's half a billion people over 10 years? That's 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 still a lot. Uh, What's your take here? I think that I think that higher ed institutions are ready and have been have been underutilized in this, um, you know, in this evolution that we've seen, this rapid evolution over the past decade in particular. You know, I think there is a, there's an important role for these institutions to play in reskilling and in, uh, you know, the the, you know, the new education of a workforce. And, you know, this is, this is my opinion, but I, I think that employers are, responsible for one kind of training and I think have not on the whole done a great job and have been called out on that more recently that you know there there there's company specific job specific training that should be done and and can be best done by employers and I think that there still needs to be a lot more investment there I actually think that's the segment that 
has more to do and is still less ready in my mind. And then you've got the higher education institutions where there's, you know, there's professional training that can happen there. There's also, you know, all of the other skills that that we look for when we're hiring employees. Um, you know, the the again communication skills. Uh, you know processing, aptitude, um, you know, problem solving, critical thinking. These are the areas that will always have value with, you know, everybody is, is, is made, made into a stronger employee by being educated in those topics. And, you know, we have all of these great institutions that, um, you know, I think are just need to and are and are thinking now differently about about what their product is and what their value add is. Yeah, I, I, I'm I, I'm I'm conscious to not put you on the spot necessarily, but uh, I'm going to <laughs> uh, right now, and uh, you're going to have a great answer, I'm sure. Which is, uh, what do you make of the this very well known disconnect and the finger pointing, frankly, that happens uh, between businesses and higher education institutions? You know, ninety plus percent of provosts believe that their uh, graduating seniors are ready for the world of work, whereas uh, I don't know. 20, 30 percent of CEOs. It depends on the study you look at, but there's a pretty big gulf in terms of CEOs yeah. think that college graduate graduates are not work ready. So mm-hmm. who's 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 right? You know, somebody's got it's always something in the middle, but who's who's more right here? Well, I think that I think that what they're really disagreeing about is is the definition of readiness. What does readiness mean? And so this is, um, well, you know me, I always find the diplomatic answer, but I actually think they're both right. I really do. And it's it's that you know, like the higher ed institutions are doing their part. I, you know, I think the provosts are right to to make someone employment ready. I'll call it. Um, but to be job ready, there's more training that needs to be done. And I really think should be done. And then this by the employer and, you know, that I, I think I probably partly feel this way because that was the experience that I had. So, and I, you know, in my undergrad degree was, was actually fairly professionally oriented. I mean, I double majored in accounting and finance and I went to work in investment banking. So I was, um, you know, I, I, I was educated and I was ready to go. But when I, you know, started my job when I was a fresh graduate day one at Goldman Sachs, I didn't start working. I went into a very thoughtful, rigorous, extensive training program um, that, that went on for weeks before I was job ready. And I think that's the way to do it. That's the way it should be done. You know, I aspire. I, that that's something that that to me, Goldman is still the you know the gold standard for me when I think about my own work experiences and what I aspire to to build in my own companies. I think that that you know having that thoughtful of a program to take anyone coming from you know whatever their educational background is from um, you know capable and, uh, and ready to, you know, ready to work to being ready to do that specific job. I, I have, uh, you know, directed, I had direct involvement in that, uh, in that Goldman program over, over the years. And mm-hmm. yeah, that is, I agree. It's, 
uh, those are the exception, still the exception and, uh, so, yeah. and, and not, and not the norm. Yeah. And that was, I mean, uh, that was over 20 years ago that I, that <laughs> I went through that training program there and getting old. Um, but you know, still, still today, I think that that's something that those, those professional services firms, um, do, you know, figured out how to do really well and still, I think, you know, lead, lead in terms of corporate training. Okay, so so that's going to be our advice to CEOs of of corporations: is double down on your training and really get thoughtful mm-hmm. on, on the yep. at, at the front end uh, of things. Uh, I've got two more questions before we run out of time. One is, if you are the leader of a higher education institution, what would you be doing right now to ensure the viability of your institution? I would be developing, if, if I were leading the academic institution, I would be driving corporate partnerships. I would be building relationships with all of the employers that I wanted my graduates to go to. I would be ensuring that, you know, we had established pipelines to showcase our students and what we could do. And of course, you know, understanding and pulling back into the program what what those employers wanted. And that's a huge mindset shift. I mean, that's, 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 again, that's something that's been happening for some institutions, but, you know, you go back a couple decades and the parents were the customers Um, and, you know, shifting to thinking about the, the future employers as the customers. I, I think that's the, that's the key for being, being a viable institution going forward. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you that, that, that is not as top of mind uh, with university presidents and provosts, et cetera, than it, than it should be. Are we actively out in the community fostering those relationships or are we kind of resting on our academic laurels? Uh, hey, you know, our, our foundation is strong and we've got a bunch of people from those companies that sit on our board. Mm-hmm. We're okay. Um, yep. And, yep. and I think the answer to that is uh, no, you're probably not okay. You got to do more work there. Yeah. Yeah. I think alumni, those alumni networks can, can be part of it, but they're, they're definitely not, not enough. You've got to have the direct corporate relationships, I think. Yep. Now you are also a published author and I, I, uh, before we, uh, before we run out of time, please clue our listeners in to your book, The Good Boss. So, yep. Thank you for asking. So my book is about how to create inclusive and supportive workplaces for women. So it's The Good Boss, Nine Ways Every Manager Can Support Women at Work. And what I... and. I love my book. I'm very proud of it. I really enjoyed writing it. And uh, what I wanted to do was in a very practical, approachable way, show every manager, particularly the male manager who, you know, wants to be a good boss for women, wants to, you know, hire, retain, promote women in his, on his team and his organization to show him you know, this is this is your job too, and there are a lot of things that you can do that can really make a huge difference in the day to day work experience of the women in your workplace. So I broke it. I broke the book down into nine rules 
that I think every single manager can follow, whether you're a new manager, manager of one person or 100 people, or if you're a CEO. Um, and it's it's really all about being thoughtful about the you know, the experience of your employee and how they hear, see, you know, receive the the direction, the guidance, the information from managers, from peers, from colleagues, um, and you know, take responsibility for for changing that environment where it's needed to um, to to make it fit them too. And I and you know, I wrote it from the perspective of a woman who worked, you know, often in more majority male work environments in the earlier years of my career. So there's a lot of my own stories in there, but I interviewed a ton of women about their experiences, what worked for them. What I've found, one thing I've found since having the books, the books been out there, I've been, um, you know, out there talking about it for a while now. And one of the things that I've come to realize is that you know, that was my view as a woman, but much of what I write about is, is equally true for people who feel, feel unrepresented or like they don't belong in another way, whether that's because of race or income level or sexuality or what have you. It's, it's really, I think the core of the book of what, what I want it to be is, um, you know, making sure that we all take responsibility for making everybody feel like they belong and can have a voice. Yep. Bring, bring the whole self to the world of work. There are mm-hmm. huge benefits to that. Um, yep. Kate, we are at time. Uh, this has been just lovely having you on the show. We will have to do it again. Uh, so for our listeners, thank you to Kate. And my name is Andy Tempty. You can find everything uh, The Balancing Act at andrewtempty.com. Uh, you can find the podcast on all the major uh, podcast services and also at andrewtempty.com and buy Kate's book, buy my book, uh, buy some random book off the shelf and support an author. Buy books, buy more books. <laughs> buy, and, and, oh, and read them. Don't just let them sit and on read. the shelf. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time and uh, thank you to Kate Walker for, uh, for being on the show. Thank you.